Thank you very much. We are in John chapter 12, and we left off right around verse 20. So the backstory here is uh, we've, we saw a dinner party that Jesus attended in which he was, uh, some extravagant worship happened. Mary anointed his feet uh, and actually anointed his head as well. We learned from the other two gospels that mentioned the story. Um, and the, the perfume was worth somewhere between 40 and $50,000. That's extravagant worship. Um, and we saw Judas and some of the other apostles complain about it. The other apostles are mentioned in the other gospels that talk about it, that it, wasn't, it was sort of a waste of money, that the value of the perfume, the value of Christ, and they didn't understand the value of Christ is infinite. And um, then Jesus made his triumphal entry. Uh, in this chapter into Jerusalem. We said last week on the exact day that was predicted that it would occur, um, prophesied about 600 years beforehand. Pretty amazing in the book of Daniel chapter nine. So they, they hailed him as king, but a few days from now, they're going to yell, crucify him, a lot of those same people. So verse 20, we've got this strange story. I'm going to give you the two theories about this story in a second um, of what's going on here. What's Jesus' response to these Greeks that come and ask to hear from him? We're also going to hear God speak from heaven in this uh, portion of scripture. Anyway, let's um, jump into the text in verse 20. So I know that you're awake. If you're here, say amen. That's kind of wimpy. Uh, how about those of you online? If you're awake, say amen or wave or do something. There you go. I see you, Bob Lewis in Tennessee. Okay, verse 20. Now there were some, well, you know what? Let's pick it up in verse 19 because there's so many people. Verse 18, heard that he had performed the sign. They went out to meet him. He's got a, just a huge crowd. It's Passover. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Obviously, that's an exaggeration. That's hyperbole. But they just mean we're losing the people. They're going after him. It's interesting that he's the Jewish Messiah, and most aren't going to recognize him as that. But what the Pharisees say, in a way, is a little bit of a prophecy um, that they don't really realize they're making. The whole world, meaning Gentiles. Look at the next verse. Here they come. Verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. These are probably Greek people that are converts to Judaism, and they're allowed to worship in the outer court because they're, uh, they may not be fully circumcised and all that, but they come to worship the real God. They are there at the festival, which means Passover. They came to Philip, one of the 12, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. They want to meet him. They want a private little interview with him, so to speak. Um, Philip is a Greek name. Bethsaida is a Greek section of Galilee. That may be why they sought him out of the 12, which one of the 12, to uh, ask about it. So Philip is a little hesitant. They're not Jewish. So Philip, verse 22, goes to tell Andrew. And Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Told Jesus what? Jesus, there's some Greeks here that want to meet you and speak with you. Okay. Now there's two theories on what happens 
in the verses that follow 23 down to, you know, uh, well, down to several verses, uh, at least seven. Theory number one is that Jesus snubs these people, at least for now. Um, if you read the text, there's no, you never hear of them again. Did he meet with them and John just didn't record it? That would be odd to mention the request. But Jesus sees this request as an indication that it's a sign that his hour has definitely come. It'll be this week. It's just a few days from now he's going to die on the cross. For the sins of the Jews? No. For the sins of the world, Jews, Gentiles. So this is a sign maybe God told him to look for. The other theory on this is that he doesn't snub them and that what he's going to say in verses 23 and following is to his disciples and to these Greek people that have asked for an interview. We don't know how many of them there might have been two or three. There might have been 25. We don't know that they've come to worship the true and living God. It's an indication that they are curious about Jesus and want to know more about him. If he snubs them here, which I don't think is what happened, okay? I think he's speaking to both in these verses. But even if he does, it would be for this reason. This is why a lot of scholars think he does snub them here, because um, he comes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. That's in a couple of New Testament books. They haven't, the Jews haven't fully rejected him yet, crucify him. So he's staying with the Jews. He knows if he snubbed them that after the cross, the resurrection, they will get the gospel. You know, somebody will contact them, meet them, give them the gospel. That's theory number one. I believe John MacArthur and others are right that he doesn't snub them. These verses are his answer. So that's, they want to talk to Jesus. Verse 23, if this is his answer, it also is a little unusual. Verse 23, Jesus replied, remember the, the question is, hey, there's some Greeks that want to see you. Answer. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Doesn't sound like an answer. It sounds like that was a sign God told him to look for when the, Jew, the Gentiles come and mass and start wanting to hear the gospel. That's your sign. It's your time to be glorified, meaning the cross. What you and I would see as a bloody mess, he sees as stepping up to a throne, being glorified. It's an incredible thing. So he says the hour has come. Several times in this gospel and elsewhere, he's been protected from harm. They tried to seize him twice in this gospel, and he was able to slip away, That John says, because it wasn't his time. When Mary asks him in chapter two, hey, they have no wine at this wedding in Cana. Can you do something? He says, woman, my hour hasn't yet come. All of a sudden, he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Suffering is followed by glorification. The suffering is the cross, the death, the resurrection is the glory, and then the ascension. So that's what he says. The time has come for the Son of Man to be, or the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, verse 23. Okay, now if he, if I'm right, and the scholars are right, I'm no scholar, verse 24, that he's speaking this to the Greeks and to his apostles, maybe even to others in the crowd, he wants them to know, I'm about to be glorified in a very unusual way, 
heads up, he's saying, it's not going to be the way you expect. If someone said, you know, I'm running for president, tomorrow's the election, by tomorrow night, I will be glorified, you would think he means, oh, you're going to win. Or they're choosing a king and I'm one of the candidates. If I said that, you'd think Joe thinks he's going to have the crown on by tomorrow night. Well, he's going to have a crown, all right, a crown of thorns. Glorified isn't what it's going to look like to them. He wants them to understand. If you follow me, understand what you're in for. Watch. Very next verse, 24. Very truly, I tell you, verily, verily, I say unto you, whenever he says that, it means, listen up, this is very important. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Okay, this is what's known as uh, coming from left field, right? That, what is kernels of wheat? Now he's talking about agriculture. Has nothing to do with the Greeks want to talk to you. It's time for me to be glorified. What's he talking about here? Is death. That's what he's talking about. He is the kernel of wheat or the seed of wheat. What he wants them to understand is, for me to be glorified, first, I have to die. Because the intention of Christianity is not a savior comes, he dies, he rises from the dead, oh, that's great, and nobody believes, then the world is in the same condition as sin. Instead, the, the expectation is, there's going to be a huge, huge number of people on planet Earth that are going to be saved because of this. Okay, other kernels of wheat, if you will, like him, same kind of thing. So he makes this analogy using agriculture. And truly, I tell you, he says, unless a kernel of wheat, one little kernel of wheat, unless it falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. Now, let's say I had a kernel of wheat and I said, this is a very valuable thing. I'm going to put it in this little box lock it up, and I'm going to put it on a shelf in my house or in my safe. You would say, well, that's great, but 100 years from now, you know what it's going to be? A kernel of wheat, right? It's got to be planted into the ground in order to produce more wheat than just the one. So he says, I'm going to be glorified. Here's how. I'm going to die. That's what he's saying. Unless it, a kernel of wheat, he's the kernel of wheat, falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, in other words, if it goes into the ground, buried, died and buried, it produces many seeds. I can't find uh, online an accurate number of how many Christians there has ever been on planet Earth. But the number they give you now uh, and who knows if they're all real, real, truly saved people, is 2.5 billion, with a B, Christians on planet Earth. That is a lot of people. And are they all Christians for real? I don't know. But there's over 7 billion, some say as many as 7.5 billion, roughly a third of the world population at least claims to be Christians, that incredible, since this happened 2,000 years ago, right? Jesus dying on the cross. He wants them to know, if you want to follow me, don't get on board if you think you're going to get a cabinet post or we're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm here to be the kernel of wheat, a very humble thing to pick, by the way, who's going to die, be buried, die and be buried. But then it will produce, and it sure does. Not immediately. There's the 12 apostles, a few hundred other believers here and there. 
Um, but in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit is given and 3000 receive Christ as their savior in one day. And it explodes from then on from a little ragtag group in the Middle East. So that's what he's talking about with the uh, kernel of wheat. He's talking about that. This is called the kernel of wheat teaching. Um, so there's implications for this for you and me that are going to come as well. It's not just Jesus. Um, so that, but in 24, it is just Jesus. If it dies, it produces many seeds. It's a hint that he's about to die. Verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, there have been books written called, there's one called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. This is one of them, right? Because a cursory reading, you read that and you say, what? Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world, that's how he qualifies it. Okay. Does that mean that as a Christian, if you're at all happy with anything going on in your life, you're going to hell. You're not a real Christian. Does it mean that you have to literally hate every moment of your life? No. He's using hyperbole or exaggeration. What he's saying here is the comparison between your earthly life, money, your health, your family, your friends, your home, your occupation, all the stuff of your life, your hobbies. If you're a normal human being, stuff goes wrong. Can I get an amen from anyone? Okay. Stuff goes wrong. And there are health problems and sickness and people around us are sick and some of them die. And let's face it, it's not a, 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 just a party here, right? He's saying, it's okay to love your life and your children and your occupation and what have you. But by comparison, if you don't see that this life and by comparison, hate it compared to the spiritual life, which is much greater that you will have in heaven. By the way, it's greater, not only in quality, but in quantity. What do you mean quantity? I mean, if you're really blessed, you might live to be 90 or 100 or 110 right? How long are you going to be in heaven with the Lord Jesus? Pretty much just a little longer? No, it's infinitely more, right? He's saying that anyone who loves their life, meaning lives for themselves, for the earthly pleasures, for the fleshly lusts, to get more money, to get more fame, to get more power, to get more sex, whatever it may be, more cars, whatever. Sorry, Todd. Uh, anything, he's uh, got some great cars. Anyway, if you love your life here more than Jesus, okay, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. Another way to put it, the value you put on what you have here is wrongly placed in this way. It's all going to burn. Everything except the people and the word of God, according to the Bible, it's all going to burn. So you're putting your stock in, you're putting your attention on, your focus on stuff that's just going to go away in a very short amount of time. The old saying that's a joke, really, is that if you've ever watched a funeral procession, they don't have U-Haul trailers towed behind the hearse where the guy takes all his stuff with him. 
right? They tried that in the pyramids when a guy died, we'll bury him with a bunch of gold and diamonds and people came and stole it because you can't take it with you, as they say. So if you love your life, you lose it. It's a paradox. Just the opposite is true. If you hate your life in this world, by comparison to how valuable you see Jesus Christ, you'll keep it for eternal life. Jesus Christ offers something infinitely more valuable is what he's saying here. Um, let's see. Jesus does not want to be, listen, in the top five of your priorities. He doesn't want to be in the top 20 or the top 30 or the top 40. What number? Ken's going like this. He wants to be number one or forget it. If he's number three, well, I love my family more than I love Jesus. That's wrong. Faith, family, friends, everything else. Occupation, right? People are important, but the most important thing, uh, crown me or kill me. That's what Jesus says. There's no, I like Jesus. You know, he, I go on Sunday for an hour, hour and a half and crown me or kill me. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. Um, famous people, very, very wealthy people tend to be in this category. They love their life, right? And most of the wealthy people I know and the famous people I've known have been absolutely miserable, miserable because they're building their life on something that's very hollow and you always need more fame or more money or more power, all that stuff. Okay. But if you hate your life in this world, meaning you love the Lord more than anything, you'll keep it for notice eternal life. There's the quantity. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So there's two words for servant. One is a distant servant, uh, a doulos, and one is a diakonos servant, which is a servant that's in attendance. This is that word, close attendance, not go serve me in a foreign land. It's serve me in my household. Be right here with me. Serve me. The closer you are to me, the better. When does Peter fall when he denies Christ? The Bible says he was following at a distance right? So the closer we can stay to him, the better, uh, uh, the more um, we'll have the fellowship and the blessing. Whoever serves me, notice it's a serving position we're signing up for. He wants these Greeks and others to know that, must follow me. What does follow me mean? If I jumped up from here, those of you that are here in the auditorium, and I said, follow me, what would you expect that I want you to do? Go where I go right? Where's he going? To the cross, right? He's saying, follow me. In the gospel of Matthew, he says, you, anyone that wishes to follow me must take up his what? Cross and follow me. What's a cross? Oh, it's a beautiful Christian emblem. A few people have them around their necks right now. That's great. You know what a cross is? An instrument of death, capital punishment. It's like saying, take up your guillotine, your firing squad, your gas chamber, and follow me. And you go, oh, that's so offensive. That's what a cross is, was, and is, right? An instrument of death. You say, wait, I have to follow him to the cross? Yes. What do I leave behind there? What? How am I dying? My old self, my old sinful self. I'm willing to let that go and let 
the old Joe die with him on that cross. And then and he'll make a new me. He's in the process, obviously, that will become uh, the person that he wants me to be. So we serve, we follow him. And where I am, Jesus says, my servant also will be. He doesn't mean physically in a sense he does because he's with us, right? Two or more are gathered. He's with you always. I'll never leave you or forsake you. We mentioned that earlier, but he means ultimately he's going to be in heaven where we will one day be. Amen. And he'll reign on the earth and we'll be with him as well. When you love someone, you want to be near them. My father will also honor the one who will honor the one who serves me. I'm still in verse 26. That's God. The father will honor you. If you serve Christ, what does serving Christ mean? What does following Christ mean? Following Christ means primarily obedience. You follow what he says, and he says, don't do that. I'm not, I don't want to do that. He says, do this. I want to do that. So we're following in the sense of obedience on the path that he's made for us. But to serve him means to obey him horizontally, meaning with other people in our community right? In the church, you do something to serve him. You serve him by witnessing to other people that don't believe. You serve him by giving your time or your talent or your treasure to the, a church or a Christian organization, a ministry, a missionary thing, whatever. We all have different ways to, that we can serve him with the talents he's given us. If we do so, it says God will honor the one who serves Jesus. Look at verse 27. Keep in mind the, the Greeks that came to see him, if I'm right, and they heard all that, they just heard he's going to be glorified. Oh, that's good. 23. Colonel Wheat falls to the ground and dies, talking about death. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Hmm. If you love your life, you'll lose it. You, do you see what I mean? He's almost discouraging them. Not really. He just wants them to know if you want to get into this Christianity thing, Christianity is not like fries at Burger King. You go to Burger King, you get a burger, you can add on fries. Christianity is not, I've got my life, I've got my everything going, my career, my family, my friends, and I'm just going to add Jesus. No, he says, crown me or kill me. He's got to take over first place in our lives. Okay, so he's, they're hearing all that. Now they're going to hear him in verse 27. This is, in a way, the parallel passage to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is not in the Gospel of John. This is not Gethsemane. This is before that, a few days before. Now, verse 27, my soul is troubled, Jesus says. Literally, that's the word psyche, is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, verse 28, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's go back to 27. Now, does this bother you a little that the, your Lord and Savior is saying, I'm troubled? Same word was used with Lazarus. Do you remember? He's in the grave. Jesus sees everybody crying. He weeps. He's greatly troubled two times in that Lazarus story a chapter or a, a, ago. Same kind of thing. Why is he troubled now? Because he sees it's time for the thing he's lived his whole life to do, which is die on the cross. He knows it's going to be horrible. 
Now, if you watched The Crucifixion, how many have seen the Mel Gibson movie, Passion of the Christ? How many? Just let me see your hands. Most of you, or just about everybody. It's a bloody mess. Can I just say that? Some people said, oh, Mel Gibson, he's so sad. He had to go overboard with the gore and everything and the blood and the whipping and the beating. And the. I personally think if you could see it in real time, that was nothing compared to what they did to him. Remember, it's only a two and a half ish hour movie, right? It was a long ordeal that he was on the cross, long being whipped. Everything about it was way worse than we think. But I don't think the physical pain is why he's troubled. He knows it's going to be horrendous, the physical pain. Okay. I think he is the most troubled by the fact that for the first time, in a trillion, trillion years, that's law how long the Christ has been around. Before Bethlehem, he existed forever in the past. For the first time ever, he's not only going to be separated from his father, but he's going to feel the wrath of the most powerful being in the universe, God, come down on him alone. Do you understand? Spiritual pain, not just the physical. Physical is going to be bad. From a human being standpoint, the physical pain is unbearable. Have you ever heard of the word excruciating? That comes from excruci is Latin for the cross, crucifixion, same prefix. The pain of the cross for Jesus was much more than physical. It was the pain of being separated from his father. What does he shout on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in his life, he cries out and gets a busy signal. Every other time he calls God his father, on the cross he calls him my God, my God. That's how much separation there is. That's why his soul is troubled. The humanity in him says what all of us would say. In that room is pain and suffering. Anybody want to go in there? I want to go the other direction, right? When we have trials, and this will come to us too, there's only two prayers. Prayer number one, get me out of here, right? Get me out of this as soon as possible. I broke my leg. I have cancer. I, whatever it may be, as soon as possible. The other prayer is, Lord, glorify your name. That's the one he's going to pray. Are you saying we can pray that, Joe? Absolutely. And God can glorify his name through our suffering? Absolutely. And I'll tell you something else. People generally grow more in those hard times than they do when everything's great. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. Sounds gross, but it's true. Christianity has grown the most when Christians were being killed by the thousands. It, when it had to go underground, it grew the most then. The countries where Christianity is growing the most right now are China and Africa, where there can be great persecution. Christianity is so far, far as I know, not growing church in America. Church attendance is diminishing, going down. Okay. Not comfortable to talk about, but it's true. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? He's hypothetically saying it to the people that are there. Father, save me from this hour. In other words, there's pain over there at the cross on Calvary. Get me out of here. Save me, please. Right? Before you pray that, when there's a trial, ask, 
Do you want me to learn something from this? Can I glorify you greater going through this in a greater way than I can going through it than I can if, you, if I escape and run away? Hard to do. Uh, so he says, should I pray, save me from this hour? Immediately, it's a hypothetical question. He answers it, no. Listen to this. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. He's telling you there that although he came to teach, although he came to do miracles and heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse, cleanse lepers and bless those around him, all of that was the French fries. The burger of his life, what a weird analogy, was to die on that cross. That's why he came. He's saying, this is the, for this very reason I came to this hour, to die, to suffer, to take the place of everyone who will believe and take the punishment they deserve. When you see how horrendous Jesus's punishment was, I hope you see yourself. That movie, Passion of the Christ, I had tears in my eyes because I kept saying to myself, oh my, this is what I deserved. He's taking this as my substitute, and I'm watching it going, oh, greater love has no man for this than he lay down his life for his friends, Jesus says later in this gospel. But we digress. Okay, so he says, no, for this reason, I came to this hour. What's the other prayer instead of get me out of here? Save me from this hour. Verse 28, Father, meaning God the Father, glorify, notice, your name. He's not saying glorify my name. That will happen as a result of him as utter obedience to his father. But he's saying, you, God, I'm doing this all for your glory. Can we say the same thing? Hopefully. Father, glorify your name, he says. Then a voice, I'm still in verse 28, came from heaven. This is an amazing thing. Only happens three times that God speaks audibly from heaven in the New Testament. The other two are the um, baptism of Jesus. Do you remember that? This is my beloved son. The father speaks, the spirit descends, the son goes under the water. The baptism of Jesus. And the other one is um, the transfiguration, Matthew 17, I believe it is. Do you remember that? Peter, James, and John, the only ones that see those. It, it, it appears Pete, John hears at least twice God speak. Maybe he was at the baptism. We don't know that. Um, but here, God is going to speak again uh, for the third time. Jesus says, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. You know what it is, because whose voice is it? Well, who did he address? Father, right? The voice says, I don't have a deep enough voice to make this sound good, so I'll just do it in my voice. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. What does that mean? It means he's already glorified it in the life of Jesus Christ already. How so? Just the fact that Jesus Christ lowered himself and became a human being, the incarnation God was glorified in that. God was glorified by the sinless life of Jesus Christ, the utter obedience. God was glorified by every miracle Jesus did. All the healings, the multiplying of the loaves and the fish, the calming of the seas, God got the glory for all of that, as he should. But here's the thing. I've glorified it in the past, and I will glorify it again. God also got the glory from the past because of all the prophets 
that God told them, say this, Isaiah, say this, Jeremiah, say this, Moses, and all those prophecies about the Messiah came true. Again, hundreds of years later, sometimes a thousand years later or more in the case of Moses. So I have glorified it. We've covered that. And I will glorify it again. The way this sentence is in the Greek, it doesn't just mean I've done that. I'm going to do it again. Been there, done that. I'm going to do it one more time. It means in a greater way. It means I have already glorified it, but I'm going to glorify it now again in a unique and ultimate way. You say, what's that? That's the cross, the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven. That's the ultimate glory of God. That's the love of God, a visual for all of humanity to see. So God speaks from heaven, okay? How far away is heaven? It's a different dimension, right? Can God speak that loud? Does he have a big PA system? He does, a really big one. Doesn't need a microphone, I'm kidding. He speaks, and through the dimensions, people on earth hear him. Okay, what is a Bible? It's the what? Word of God, the message from God to human beings. You with me so far? What does the Bible have in common with what God just said? I've glorified it. I will glorify it again. Answer, the degree to which some people get it and some people miss the whole thing. Watch. Here's the reaction. Verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it. Stop right there. Heard what? The voice of God. Oh, wow. What a revelation. Not so much in varying degrees. Watch. Watch what unbelief does with the word of God. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Okay. School of thought number one. Oh, there's a natural explanation for that. Oh, that you read the Bible, do you? Yeah. You know, there's a natural explanation for those 66 books. They're just written by men. They're myths, stories. It's been changed natural explanation. Okay. God spoke from heaven. Did these thunder people, the naturalists, the unbelievers understand the words? I don't think so. I think they heard thunder, right? What do you mean? I mean, bring an unbeliever in here that has no connection to Jesus Christ, does not believe a normal sinner like you and I used to be, hopefully, and read him the gospel of John, and it'll be like thunder, noise. Yeah, hmm. it's interesting. See you later. I know because I read the Bible before I was a believer and it made no sense to me. I can't believe it's the same Bible I'm reading right now. I swear they changed it since I became a Christian and I'm wrong. It's the same Bible. I now have the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? You've heard me use the analogy before about a radio. Remember the analogy about the radio? Anybody? No? Okay. If you're very quiet in the room you're in, whether you're on Zoom at home or you're here, if you're very quiet, you can hear music playing. You say, oh, he's starting to lose it. Oh, and you can hear talk radio, a political talk radio. You can hear sports talk radio. There's a Warriors game on. Probably it's on the radio somewhere in California. Oh, you can hear Hispanic music playing. Those of you that don't live in Hispanic areas, just listen. You can hear all kinds of things. I don't hear any of that. I think you're starting to lose it, Joe. No, no. 
It's in this room. All that music is ch chiming in here all at once. There's symphonic music playing. There's probably Chinese music playing. But if you don't have a radio, you can't dial it in. You can't hear it. That's why you don't hear it. If I had a radio here, I could flip the dial and show you everything I just told you. What are you saying? I'm saying without the Holy Spirit, the voice of God is, whoa, it's just a bunch of thunder. It's a little scary, but it, there's a natural explanation. Go back to the text. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Well, that's a little closer to the truth. There's a supernatural explanation that falls way short of God spoke. The one God, God the Father, spoke from heaven. This is the demotion of God. God speaks and people go, yeah, angels. It's, it's a spirit thing. I'm very spiritual. And do you see what I mean? But, the, but there are some that hear it, that understand it. Okay? I believe John heard it and understood it. Some heard it and didn't understand it. Some heard it and did. Watch. Jesus said, verse 30, this voice, meaning God saying that from heaven, was for your benefit, not mine. Jesus did not need confirmation. He wasn't the insecure son of God. Are you still there, God? Hello? He didn't need that. You got the picture? Constantly in communication with the Father, 24-7. I, I believe when he slept, he was communing with God. Okay? It wasn't for his benefit. It was for the people there but to varying degrees, we already said, watch. Verse 31, now is the time for the judgment on this world. What do you mean by that? Now the prince of this world will be driven out. What does he mean by that? Verse 31, okay, yeah, we still have time. I wanted to check my uh, notes. Okay, first of all, he says, the, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Again, varying degrees of who understood it and what. But now he wants them to know it's time for the judgment on this world. Okay, what is it time for again? The cross is coming later this week, a few days from now. Okay, the cross will be the dividing line for all judgment done by God on planet Earth. All of it. In this way. We commonly say sinners go to hell. Christians go to heaven. That's true, but it doesn't, it's not really accurate because everybody in this room and everybody on Zoom, if you're a Christian, guess what you what else you are? A sinner, right? Hopefully, not to the degree you were before you came to Christ, should be less and less and less, and you're doing more good and believing more, but we all still sin. So it's not accurate to say sinners go to hell because I would go to hell. I still sin. You do too. Well, then what's the dividing line? The dividing line is one thing. What did you do with Jesus Christ? God does not have to ask a person who died. Let's look at your records. Although there are records and he will look at those for unbelievers, every single thing they ever said, did, or thought that was against God's will, they'll be judged on those. But the dividing line is what did you do with my son? Who's your son? Jesus Christ. I thought he was a good teacher. He had some good things to say. Wrong answer. Unless he's your savior, the sin you committed is still on your head. 
still on your soul, unfortunately. If you are a believer and you say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior, the only thing I'm trusting in to get into your kingdom, he opens the book under my name, and there would have been 800 pages of sin in a very small font. And he looks and goes, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Welcome, my son. Of course, he already knows that, but I'm, I'm making an analogy here. Okay, so what's going on in verse 31? Um, let's see. Now is the time for the judgment of this world, because the cross is the judgment time for this world. Has, has it ever struck you as curious that in most of the world, the year right now is 2021, right? And yet human history has went before that year one, right? We reset the years based on when we think Jesus was born. Turns out he was born probably in four BC. Some say as early as seven BC. They got the date wrong. That doesn't matter. My point is, it, it's an indication that it's the crux of human history when Jesus shows up on planet earth. What you do with Jesus is the basis on which everything gets judged by God. Um, Okay, so that's the first thing. Now is the judgment on this world. Um, and the world includes Israel, who's going to get judged 40 years later for not believing, for the most part, in their Messiah. They lose their country. They lose the city. They lose the temple. They lose a lot of them, their lives, and they're scattered around the world, all because of this one thing. What did you do with Jesus? Crucify him. Yikes. Wrong answer. Let's keep rolling. Okay, what's the second part of that verse? Now the prince of this world, who's that? Satan, the devil, right? Will be driven out or cast out. Okay, you say, well, Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. In what way? Because Satan is still, to quote Hal Lindsey, alive and well on planet Earth, right? Is he in chains right now? No. Will he be during the millennium? thousand year period. Yes. After Christ returns, he will for a thousand years, but right now he still seems to be alive and well on planet earth. In what way was the prince of this world? First Corinthians calls Satan. I think it's first Corinthians or second, the God small G of this world, by the way, how did he get elected to that position? Answer our parents, Adam and Eve, I'm going way back, right? Voted. There was only two people on planet Earth. God said, don't eat of this tree. Satan said, no, vote for me. Eat the tree. And they did eat the fruit, right? He's been the God of this world ever since. In the sense that there is, since then, death, decay, sickness, crime. The reason you lock your doors is you can thank Adam and Eve. Like, boy, I got a lot to say to them when I see them. But anyway, the reason you lock your car when you park in the parking lot here Um Okay, so the world system is judged. I want you to keep your finger here and go to Colossians chapter two. We're only going to be there for a second. If you can't find it, you won't get an A, but you will at least uh, get, you'll hear me read it anyway. Go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians right after. So about seven, eight books to the right. It's a short book. Colossians chapter two talks about what we're talking about here. Um, pick it up in verse 13, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. 
having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, the law and, and our judgment because of it, and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having listened to this, verse 15, disarmed, imagine people loaded with weapons and somebody comes and just takes all their weapons. That's Satan. Uh, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, so what is Satan's big weapon against people? He's the accuser of the brethren, right? Remember, did you ever read the book of Job? Satan's in heaven going, Job, yeah, he'll curse you. He just loves you because you've been so good to him. He's always accusing us. He, that weapon gets pulled out of his hands with the cross and your faith because he cannot accuse God, you before God anymore. You are, when he says, oh, that Joyce, she's such a sinner. And God says, she's one of mine. Jesus, my son paid for all her sins. Leave her alone. Can Satan still tempt Joyce or bug Joyce or oppress Joyce? Yes. Possess Joyce? No way. Come into her and take over? No. Why? Because it says no vacancy on Joyce. The Holy Spirit lives inside of Joyce. Satan comes calling and the Holy Spirit opens the door and says, get lost. I live here. This is my territory. It's a beautiful thing. So he is disarmed. He is cast out. His ability to influence the world is greatly diminished in that he now can't touch anybody for salvation reasons, send them to hell who believes. That's you. Um, he still acts on planet earth, but eventually he will be completely, uh, disarmed. Um, go back to, J let's see. Yeah. Go back to John. And then we'll take our break in a second. Go back to John 14. Hold on one second. Go back to John 12. I mean, and then take a right and go to John 14 and we want John 14, 30. John 14, 30 says, I will not speak with you much longer, Jesus says, for the prince of this world is coming. That's the devil. He has no hold on me. He can say that while he's alive. Why? Because he never sinned. Satan tried to get him to sin. Do you remember the temptations? Make bread uh, out, of, uh, out of stones, jump off the temple, and, and you won't hurt yourself. And Satan has nothing on Jesus, but the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Okay, now go to uh, Revelation, very quickly, Revelation 12, last book of the Bible, easy to find, Revelation chapter 12, and I think we want verse 9, we do. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon that's in the Bible is explained at one point as that's Satan, Lucifer. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Okay, this is during the seven-year tribulation. Satan finally is thrown down to earth. He knows his time is short. He's acting through a man called the Antichrist, which is a world leader who is basically controlled by the devil. 
Let's take our two-minute break now that everyone's confused and stretch your legs and, and wake up, and we'll be back in two minutes. I'm going to turn my camera off. I'll be right back. Don't go away. There we go. We are back. Find your seats. Thank you. I did it. Um, and my microphone is on. Yes. Okay. So verse 31, we're still kind of discussing. Um, so Satan has been convicted, if you will, okay, by a higher court than his own, by any worldly court. He's been convicted by God's court. So his um, conviction has already been sent down because of the cross. But you say, but he's still here, right? Yes. He's still active. Yes. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. And I'll show you where in, in history, Satan, it goes down completely. Let's see. Verse 20, uh, verse one, I mean, of chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. This is Revelation 20. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon. Well, who is that? That ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. That's the thousand year millennium in which Satan is bound. You and I have never lived in a world like that where there's no Satan with him, all the demons, obviously. Okay. Um, he threw him into the verse three abyss and locked him and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. This is a thousand years of Jesus reigning on planet earth. I can't wait for that. Um, let's see. After that, he must be set free for a short time. You say, why? And the answer is, after a thousand years of the, a righteous government occurring on planet Earth, unbelievably, Satan gets released and starts a rebellion. And unbelievably, there are some people that go, yeah, I'm going with Satan. I want to go my own way. I don't like this. He offers some things I want. And those people are finally judged. And I won't go through the whole book of um, Revelation with you, but they... Um, are all judged and thrown into the lake of fire, including the false prophet, including the Antichrist, including Satan, the unholy trinity, by the way, uh, Revelation 13. And he's done for forever, day and night, forever. He'll In heaven, there will never again be temptation, sin, pain, death, crying, mourning, sickness. Go back to uh, John, if you will. Okay, so... Um, the sentence has been carried out. He, Satan is on a short leash. God lets him do what he does on planet Earth only for uh, a time. His destruction is absolutely sure in the future. Okay, verse 32, double meaning. And I, remember, this might still be him talking to the disciples and those Greeks who asked, we want to see Jesus, king of the Jews. And he says, I'm like a kernel of wheat. I got to die first for there to be a huge crop. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, verse 32, will draw all people to myself. A couple things. First of all, and I himself, when I am lifted up from the earth, primary meaning, crucifixion. When I'm lifted up from the earth, they lift the body up, they nail the 
crossbar to the hands and then the crossbar to the vertical post and then it takes several men to lift the whole thing up and it usually went into a hole into the rock um and and he would be lifted up symbolically in the space between earth and humans and god to be the bridge between the two between the, the to be the intersection between the vertical and the horizontal the cross of jesus christ when i'm lifted up from the earth he means the cross but he also means lifted up in the sense of being exalted and in, in terms of being greatly honored and worshiped both are true here the double meaning when that happens he says in the context what was just before this death 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 right when that happens when i'm lifted up from the earth i will draw the greek reads all to myself what do you mean the word people isn't in there it's implied because he doesn't mean chickens or mosquitoes right here um he means all to himself the question is what does that mean okay it doesn't mean all people because if it did how many people would get saved every single last one of us whether we believe or not because a lot of people die in unbelief can't mean that right Elsewhere, he says, narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life, and few there be that find it, smaller number. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many find that way, go in their own way, right? Fleetwood Mac song. Anyway, um, the point is that he, what he's saying here is he's going to draw all people, okay, all in the sense of what? Theory number one, and this may all be true, by the way. Number one, not just Jews. What's the contact? Greeks just asked. All. Chinese, Irish, South Americans, Australians, people from Nevada, wherever, right? <laughs> I don't know why we're picking on Nevada all of a sudden. He'll draw people from not just Jews. I'm the Jewish Messiah. They've rejected me. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all kinds of people. All people in the sense of race, all people in the sense of social strata. It's not, you got to have a certain amount of money to get in the kingdom of God. No, no, it can be the very poor. It can be rich people as well if they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All. Some say this means all, meaning, back to chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Chapter 10 says a similar thing about his sheep. I have other sheep. I must bring them too. All the ones he's chosen. I don't want to get into the whole predestination chosen thing, but it could mean that uh, as well. The point is, it takes him being lifted up on a cross and takes him dying, bridging that gap for him to be able to save anybody. If Jesus had just theoretically, go with me on this, God becomes a human being named Jesus Christ. He lives an unbelievably great human life. He never sins. He's a wonderful person. He does miracles. He's kind. He's loving. And he lives out his life and he dies. Or let's just say he ascends into heaven. Forget the cross. Well, then you know what we have? A great example. Good luck on that. Try to imitate him. Good luck. You'll never do it until we're born again. Chapter three. Remember, you must be born again. 
Um, let's see, what else do we want to say about this? Uh, we lift up Jesus by preaching him. I'm lifting him up right now, talking about him in an honoring way. When he's lifted up, he'll draw all to, notice the word, myself. What do you mean? I mean, Christianity is unlike every other religion. Christianity is about a person. Yes, there's doctrine, the stuff we believe, but you take Jesus out of Christianity, you got nothing. We can't live this life apart from him, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God enabling us. It's about a person. He draws him to himself. Okay, so verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Lift it up. Okay, they, the Jews, understood the term lifted up to have a double meaning. How do you know that? Because of verse 34. Double, you know, lifted up could mean I, I'm really lifting up my wife. She's a wonderful person. That means I'm adoring her and giving her praise, right? But they understood lifted up it could also mean lifted up. He's um, lifted up. It's like the word hold up. I'm going to hold up somebody as a good example. You understand what that means? Or if I get a gun and I go, lock the doors, Harry, this is a hold up. Give me all your money. It's a whole different meaning, right? And you would understand each one of those. Watch how they understand. The crowd spoke up, verse 34. We have heard from the law, Old Testament, that the Messiah will re remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Or read the, way, the right way, in my opinion. Who is this son of man okay we've got we've spoken about this a lot the jews expected a king to rule forever a hero on a white horse who would throw off the romans ruling kick them out of their country judge all sin reward all the righteous jews and reign forever on the throne of david uh his ancestor um, yeah, his ancestor. Okay, that's what they're expecting. Were they right? Yes. That's what the Old, Test Old Testament says. And the, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Old Testament. So you can't blame him. They're saying, we've heard about this son of, uh, son of man, this Messiah figure. He's going to remain forever. You're talking about dying? Makes no sense. But we've said many times, I won't belabor the point, but the Old Testament presents the Messiah, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, the suffering servant who does die for the sins of his people. It actually says that in Psalm, in Isaiah 53. Uh, and it kind of hints at it in Psalm 22. I think it might even say it. We'll go there when we get to the crucifixion about 20 years from now. But anyway, um, the teacher is very slow here in this Bible study. Um, the point is they're expecting what's been preached to them by the rabbis, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees is the conquering king is going to come. Who wants a suffering servant? We need a conquering king. He can't come the second time as the conquering king unless he comes the first time and suffers and dies because he's not here for worldly kingdoms. He's here for salvation, which is eternal, which is spiritual, not physical. Although in a sense, it's both because our bodies are raised physically and so was his. Who is this son of man? Okay, now the, the Messiah had other titles. The son of David. That's a Messiah. That is um, Jewish. 
okay? The son of David, the Jewish king. Son of man is more worldly, uh, meaning the whole world, not worldly in a bad sense. So why do you say he, he, the son of man is going to be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Um, all of this predicted uh, in the Old Testament. Um, do we want to go there now? No, let's keep reading. Um, yeah. Um, there's all kinds of scriptures you could go to that, that say that he reigns forever, and he will when he comes the second time. In fact, he's reigning in heaven, your Messiah, right now, right? We will see it on planet Earth at the second coming. May it be sooner rather than later. Um, so this is the last mention in the gospel of John of the crowd, of the Jews. They're rejecting him. The next time we see him, they're yelling, crucify him. So this is an official rejection of the Jews by Jesus, uh, of Jesus by the Jews, as well as it is um, Greeks coming to him. Gentiles are coming to the Jewish Messiah, indicating there may be a melding of the two, where there's Jews and Gentiles who believe in the same Messiah, which there is today. Um, okay. So that's the question they ask. 34, who is the son of man? How can you say he's going to die when we've heard he's going to be here forever? I want you to notice verse 35, he doesn't answer the question. Let's call a spade a spade. Look at 35. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Okay, sounds like it comes out of left field, but he is answering their question. He's saying, I've already told you what I have to do and who I am. Um, but he's 35 is a verse saying urgent, like if he had a siren, he would have put the siren on. This is an urgent time for you Jews. You're going to have the light, the physical presence of God in human flesh with you himself. He is the light of the world. Remember that a couple of chapters ago? You're only going to have the light of the world just a little while longer. The truth is, it's about three days. That's it. Walk while you have the light. You better believe in me while you can. Wait, are you saying they couldn't believe after this? I'm saying that after the cross and after the resurrection, some did. Most, their hearts were hardened. You're going to see God hardens them even more. Watch. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark doesn't know where they're going. You ever have the power go off in your house at night suddenly, and you're walking somewhere, and you're suddenly like, wow. You can't see anything, pitch blackness. It's a weird feeling, isn't it? You start braille, like feeling for furniture and stuff, right? Or, or a cell phone to turn your light on or whatever, a match or a candle. Um, whoever walks in the dark doesn't know where they're going, double meaning. Whoever walks in the dark means unbelievers. They, most of them, listen, don't know where they're going, you mean on earth, like they need GPS? No, I mean spiritually. Most people that don't believe in Jesus, if you said, are you going to go to heaven or hell? They would either say, I don't believe in either one, or they would say, I'm a basically a good person. I don't need Jesus. I'm going to heaven. They don't know where they're going, right? Um, 
verse 36. This is his final appeal, if you will. He never speaks to the crowd again like he does here. This is the final. Um, remember who wants to be a millionaire, the TV show? Is that your final answer? This is his final answer, his final appeal. Believe in the light while you have the light, his being there with him. He is the light. So that you may become children of light, offspring. Remember the kernel of wheat? That's him. And that's what we become because he died and there's a great fruitful, fruitful crop. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Boy, that sounds final. And it is. It's a picture of what's going to happen after he ascends to heaven. Hidden. The Messiah is hidden for 2,000 years. They've been looking for him. We know where he is and who he is. Pretty amazing um, portion of scripture. Believe while you have the light. Um, let's see. So now John is going to editorialize and add um, some content here to explain, starting in verse 37. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was kind of wimpy too, but we'll just keep rolling. I want to hear amen. Say amen. amen. Okay, see? Much better. <laughs> Those of you on Zoom, say amen nice and loud. Even though you're muted, I can hear you. Okay, this is the saddest part of this whole gospel, what we're about to look at. Verse 37. Uh, let me see. We already talked about that. I just want to see if I want to go to any other verses. No, we're good. Um, verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs, miracles in their presence. In other words, they can't say we just didn't have enough evidence. You didn't show us anything that made us think maybe this is God in a human body. Are you kidding me? All the healings, all the miracles, all the raising from the dead. Lazarus just happened, and it's being spread far and wide in Jerusalem. We saw it. Dude, Lazarus was gone. He was dead four days. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. He walked out. We unwrapped him. It was him. Even, let's see, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Stubborn, persistent unbelief. Now, some of you have been there where for a while, many years of my life, I just didn't believe. And God was merciful to you and softened your heart at some point, And now you do. But there comes a point when time is up. Watch. What John wants you to know is He's kind of answering this question. Okay, if Jesus was so great, why didn't everybody believe in him? That's what he's answering, that question. Why? Why do most people, you just said two and a half billion people, Joe. There's seven and a half billion, roughly, that's a third. Two thirds don't believe in your supposed Messiah. Why is that? John wants you to know that Jesus isn't shocked. God the Father's not going, oh, I thought he'd get a better reception than this. He knew all along what was going to happen. Watch. This was, verse 38, to fulfill the word of Isaiah. He's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to show you this was all prophesied. The prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a rhetorical question. It's like saying, who's... He's come and done all these things. Who's believed him? What's the answer? Very few, right? 
out of millions that are there, a couple million people probably, at least a million, very few. Keep your finger here and go to Isaiah chapter 53. That's what that quote is from. It's the very first verse of what's called the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, roughly the middle of the Bible. Find the middle of your Bible. If you found Psalms or Proverbs, you got to take a right. If you find Jeremiah, you got to take a left. Isaiah 53. If you read it, it starts with verse one, which says what? What we just quoted. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a rhetorical question, almost marveling at the fact that very few. Um, um, this whole chapter is about the suffering servant. I just want to point out a few verses. I don't want to take this chapter apart just yet. Um, like a root out of dry ground, verse 50, uh, verse two, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, just like a, a like grew up as a little baby and a little boy, like a root out of dry ground, dry spiritually Israel was. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's the only verse in the Bible that tells you what he looked like. And you know what it says? Nothing special. My kind of guy. Verse three, Oh, so how did it go over? Who has believed? Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. You ever see somebody that's been so in an accident? So you go, oh, you almost can't look like that movie, Passion of the Christ. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was what? Verse five, pierced. What an interesting word written hundreds of years, about 800 before Jesus shows up. He was pierced. Why, Isaiah? For our transgressions, which is a word that means sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, which is a word that means sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds were healed. Um, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned into his own way, but the Lord, that's God, the father has laid on him. That's Jesus, the iniquity sin of us all, all predicted ahead of time. But, but, but did they eventually treat him nice? Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. This is the suffering servant that most Jews go, oh, we don't, we don't want that. We want the king guy. Um, verse, middle of verse eight, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He's going to die. Why? For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Well, are you sure he dies? Look at verse nine. He was assigned a grave. That's not for the living, right? With the wicked, he dies with two criminals. And with the rich in his death, he gets a, a really nice tomb for three, two and a half days. Though he had done no violence, it was the Lord's will to crush him, verse 10. Okay, we, I don't want to go too long in Isaiah. Some of you are falling asleep. Go back to the Gospel of John and everybody say, amen. amen. Okay, that's getting better on the amens now. <laughs> All right, you're going to be hoarse when you get home. Oh, he made us yell at the Bible study. Okay, let's keep reading. We got a little time here. Um, John wants you to know this was all predicted. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word 
of Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Notice the word revealed. It was revealed to the Jews in a way it wasn't to other countries. Not only in the fact that he was in their country doing these miracles, preaching this wisdom, all the things he did, but they had the whole Old Testament. 39 Old Testament books that talk about this coming Messiah. They should have recognized who and what Jesus was. Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. What's going on there? Kind of seems like it wasn't fair. He hardened their hearts. That's why they couldn't believe. It's the same thing that happens in the Old Testament in Exodus with um, Pharaoh. Do you remember that? Look up the word hardened in the book of Exodus. It's there a bunch of times. Here's what you read. And Pharaoh saw the miracles, saw the signs, and hardened his heart. I'm not going to believe. Then you read a little later, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then you read, Pharaoh hardened his heart. No, I'm not going to believe. And then you read, God hardened his heart even more. God will give you exactly what you want. He's a gentleman. He won't force his way. You harden your heart, he'll make it harder. You soften your heart, he'll make it softer. But it takes the Holy Spirit doing it, doesn't it? But these people, the Jews, have their eyes, verse 40, blinded and hardened in their hearts. So they can't see. They can neither see with their eyes nor understand. No wonder they heard that voice and went, thunder. Did you hear thunder? Maybe it was an angel. They didn't get it. I believe the ones that God was calling, the believers that were already there, heard the voice and heard the words and understood, wow, that was God talking to him. And the others went, what? We just heard thunder. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Paul is struck off his high horse and and Jesus speaks to him from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The ones with him say they heard something, but they couldn't understand what it was. Same kind of thing. Unbelievers. Saul heard it because God was drawing him. Let's keep rolling. Um, by the way, their eyes are blinded. You say, well, that's it for the Jews. God's done with them. Nope. Wrong. Read Romans 9, the Jews in the past. Romans 10, present time Jews of Paul's writing, Romans 11, the future God has for the Jews in the end times. That's what the great tribulation is for. Partly is God turns the lights on and they, many of them start to see, oh, it's Jesus, the guy from 2000 years ago, and we missed it. And they come to faith in the Lord Jesus. So he's not done with them forever, but this is a judicial or a penalty, if you will, hardening that God does on the Jews. I'm still good on time. Um, okay, so Isaiah said this, verse 41, because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke about him. You say, no way, Isaiah lived seven or 800 years before this. How did he see Isaiah, uh, Jesus's glory? They lived at very different times, right? It's like if I said, you know, Abraham Lincoln enjoyed this Bible study, you'd say, yeah, right, a couple centuries ago. How could Isaiah have seen his glory? 
The theory here is that God gave Isaiah a vision, and that's what he's talking about. What I just read you in Isaiah 53, what you read in Psalm 22, that the prophets of old got snapshots or dim views of, little views of what Jesus would do and be. And dying on the cross, coming back to reign the second time. Um, okay. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke about him. Amen. Verse 42. Sounds like good news at first. Verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. Many means many of the people. And he's saying even some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees believed in him. Oh, good. They believed he was the Messiah. Yeah, that's good. So they were saved. Not so much. Well, it says they believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Where was G Jesus on their priority list? Number one, numero uno, no. Because if it was, they'd go, we don't care if you excommunicate us. We believe in Jesus. Sorry. Right? Okay. Um, what about these verses? Um, several times in the Old Testament. Let's see which verse is that. Uh, 42, 43. Yeah. Okay. Matthew 10, 32. Very quickly, because we're running out of time. Matthew 10, <clears throat> excuse me, 32. I'm going there now. Matthew 10, 32, Jesus talking. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Romans says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Translation, there's no such thing as what these guys claim to be. What do you mean? Well, the leaders believed in him, but they wouldn't openly acknowledge their faith in him. I'm a secret agent Christian. I'm undercover. I'm the James Bond of Christian Christianity. Bond, James Bond. No, you can't be a secret agent Christian. God says, if you don't, Christ says, if you don't acknowledge me, you're ashamed of me. I'll be ashamed of you. That's basically what he's saying says it elsewhere, in fact. So at first, it sounds like good news. Some, a lot believed in him, but they loved, here's the key, 43, they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Human adoration, human praise. They're living their life for an audience of human <laughs> approval, human accolades, okay? For the Pharisees, they were wealthy. They were powerful. Had they said, you know, I'm sorry, fellow Pharisees. I got to say, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe in him. They would be kicked out of the whole club of being a Pharisee, lose all their power. Think of it as the Supreme Court and the Congress, and they're, you know, impeached, if you will. <laughs> and then, uh, don't get me started. And then they would probably lose a lot of their wealth as a result. Very costly. Would it be worth it? Absolutely. 
They love the human praise. How long does that last? Until they died, hopefully. Then what? Judgment forever. Values, right? Pretty amazing. So Jesus is going to make one last appeal uh, in verse 44. Um, and it's a last one because he is going to shout it. He doesn't usually shout. Says he cried out. Doesn't mean he's crying. It means he's shouting it out. Final announcement. Then Jesus cried out, verse 44, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one God, the father who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. He that has seen me has seen the father, he says elsewhere. That's an astounding thing for a human being to say, if that's all he is. If he's just human being, he's blaspheming big time. I'm expecting a lightning bolt to hit him, except it's true. He's saying, the one who sent me, God the Father, and I are so similar, we're like identical twins. You look at me, my character, my actions, my words, and God, it's the same. It's another of the many claims to deity. Believing in me doesn't mean believing in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Translation. Anybody that tells you, you know, you witness to them about Christ and church and the Bible and Jesus, and they say, you know, uh, I believe in God. I'm not a Jesus person, but I believe in God. This verse and, else, and elsewhere I could show you says wrong. No, you don't. You don't have Jesus. You don't have the Father. You have Jesus. You have both. Jesus is the only way to truly know God. I'll admit you can know God in a general sense by looking at the world and going, wow. First of all, he's very powerful if he made all this. Second of all, he's unbelievably beautiful and creative because the air is breathable on this planet and there's abundant food and fuel and differing climates. And this is an amazing universe. So he's a pretty nice guy, this God guy. But that's as far as you'll get. You want to really know the author, you got to get to know Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says in John 14, except by me. I'm the way to get to the Father. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Paul, Peter says in, um, oh, I don't know where, Acts 4 or 5, somewhere in there, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's it. Jesus Christ. Oh, you Christians are so narrow. Truth is narrow. There's one way to heaven. Refuse it, and you'll be sorry for a couple hundred trillion years, and that'll just be day one. Receive him, and God will give you the Holy Spirit, and the Bible will come alive to you in a way it never could have any other way. We're out of time. Most of you are asleep anyway. Say amen. Okay. Let's close with prayer, and we'll get out of here. Thank you, Father, for this unbelievable uh, portion of scripture. Thank you for that grain of wheat that died, was willing to die and be buried, and has made a crop of billions of believers. 
2.5 billion, if you believe the numbers now that believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and are saved. And who, many, who knows how many billions before that? We thank you for that, God. May our individual crop increase as we cast seeds out of wheat bringing people to Christ, telling others about Jesus. We spread the word and then we leave it to your Holy Spirit to do the work of drawing them and saving them. Help us to walk moment by moment in your light, God. We don't know how much time we have. May we use it for your glory, God. Help us not to be like these believers that were Pharisees that believed, but they were afraid to say something. Help us to not be ashamed of the one we believe in. It's the power of God unto salvation, the death of Christ. Help us to boldly proclaim it to everybody while we can, Father. Thank you for this time in your word. God, use us for your glory, and we pray that you would continue to bless this Bible study and each one here with great faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for on Zoom for being here. Thank you, those of you in this room. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. See you next time. God bless.